0: Hi everyone, this is Lisa Campbell at Seize the Day. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that we will be taking a break for the next two months. We'll be recruiting new student team members and working on content for our second year of production. We'll be back in mid-August with more stories from the series you already know and some that you don't. For example, in this last episode of our 2020-21 season, we're introducing a new series, The F-Files, and we're really excited about it. I'll let series host Stephanie Hillsgrove explain. But before I do, let me say from all of us at Seize the Day, thank you for listening. We're so grateful for your feedback and support as we've worked to figure out this podcasting thing. We're looking forward to year two and hope you are as well. And now, introducing the F-Files.
1: Welcome to Seize the Day, a podcast from the Duke University Marine Lab in Beaufort, North Carolina. I'm your host, Stephanie Hillsgrove, and today's episode is the first in a new series called Faculty Files, or F-Files. The f File series highlights Duke University Marine Science and Conservation faculty, including their lab members and research. In this series, we're interested in telling the stories behind the research, beyond what you may have seen on the web or read in a journal a more in-depth glimpse of who we are as a research community. We'll share a recent publication by a faculty member or group of faculty as a way to focus the episode. This provides an opportunity to get to know the faculty member and their co-authors and more about their research, as well as a chance to dive a little deeper into the paper, the story behind the paper, behind the research. For the first episode of this new series, we're focusing on memorializing the Middle Passage on the Atlantic seabed in areas beyond national jurisdiction. This paper was published in the Journal of Marine Policy in October 2020. There are 10 authors contributing to this paper and they are as follows. Philip J. Turner, Sophie Cannon, Sarah DeLand, James P. Delgado, David Altist, Patrick N. Helpin, Michael Ikenu, Charlotte S. Sussman, Ola Varmer, Cindy L. Vandover. These authors, researchers, collaborators are from Duke University, Emory College, the University of Southampton, Search Inc., the Ocean Foundation, the Republic of Sierra Leone, permanent mission to the UN. And they've all come together to write this paper. From the abstract, exploration for mineral resources on the international seabed, the quote unquote area, in the Atlantic Basin is already underway, governed by the International Seabed Authority, the ISA, Through the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, member states of the ISA have the duty to protect objects of an archaeological and historical nature found in the area. Such objects may be important examples of underwater cultural heritage that can be tied to intangible cultural heritage, as evidenced through links with religion, cultural traditions, art, and literature. Contemporary, poetry, music, art, and literature convey the significance of the Atlantic seabed in African diasporic cultural memory, but this cultural memory has yet to be formally recognized by the ISA. Additionally, in advance of mineral exploitation, the authors would like to encourage the ISA to consider ways to both respect and memorialize those who have lost their lives and now rest on the Atlantic seabed, and believe it's possible to increase awareness of the Middle Passage seascape without limiting exploitation of mineral resources because they're not mutually exclusive. The Middle Passage refers to the second or middle voyage of a three part or triangular trade route, also known as the transatlantic slave trade. The routes were from Europe to Africa, from Africa to the Americas, and from the Americas to Europe. From the early 16th century to the 19th century, more than 12.5 million African people, men, women, and children, were kidnapped in Africa, moved to a port along the West African coast, and held captive and then forced aboard ships that were set sail to the Americas the journey itself lasted months and the conditions on board for the enslaved were dreadful and inhumane some of the captives died from dehydration starvation disease murder suicide and the bodies of the dead would be tossed overboard and out of the 40,000 plus voyages from west africa across the atlantic at least a thousand ships and all those aboard were lost at sea their final resting place is the atlantic seabed Let's go ahead and meet two of the authors and hear a little bit about what led them to write this paper.
0: I'm Cindy Vandover and I'm a professor at Duke in the Division of Marine Science and Conservation. And by trade, I'm a deep sea explorer and um, and I, I work a lot in deep sea hot springs, ecology of deep sea ecosystems, um, cold seeps, things like that, for strange habitats on the seafloor. And for me, this, this thinking kind of had its origin of when, I arrived at Duke in 2006 or so, and I met uh, I, worked, I I met some of the folks who are in the humanities um, divisions at, at departments at Duke, uh, particularly Ian Balcom, who introduced me. Of course, I knew about the slave trade, but I hadn't really heard the term Middle Passage, um, and discovered for me and that Duke is a is a, a center for scholarship on the on the Middle Passage. Um, And there was a a big program going on at the time about the Middle Passage. And so that put that in my mind. And then as uh, in 2006 was really about the time that uh, 2005, 2006, I was getting involved in thinking about deep sea mining and this uh, regulatory agency, the International Seabed Authority. And I knew, so I was involved in terms thinking about how science could inform environmental policy, environmental management and policy for the seabed authority. If, if they're going to mine in the deep sea, then there's gotta be some really good environmental management uh, so that we don't destroy things. And as part of that work, thinking about environmental management, I learned about the requirement that the seabed authority, and of course, uh, UN bodies, all UN bodies have a have an obligation to protect cultural heritage. And so that led me to think, well, what kinds of cultural heritage are there in the, in the deep sea? And we, we know about the Titanic, um, and, and other major shipwrecks that are in deep water, but I've, at some point I put the Middle Passage together with the cultural heritage of the deep sea and, and seabed mining, and so so it was a little little nugget in a you know, little brain cloud that that just sat on the back burner for a long time until Phil came along and we actually started to do something.
2: I'm Philip Turner. I'm a Duke alum. I, I got my PhD back in 2019, and the, the paper we're discussing is actually the final piece of my, my PhD thesis. The paper really came from an idea and, and thoughts that Cindy had, and the, the concept kind of involved first during a research trip to Southampton um, between Cindy, myself, and uh, another master's student called Austin Smith, who When Cindy talked about the potential for the Atlantic seabed to contain artefacts relating to the transatlantic slave trade, we started thinking about what that means in terms of the environmental management around deep sea mining and kind of the responsibility that might be laid with the International Seabed Authority to recognise that history. Austin Smith started the initial background research to see what kind of data actually existed around the mortalities and that suffered during the transatlantic slave trade and what artefacts might be present on the Atlantic seabed. And that kind of evolved more and more as we researched the topic into this broader discussion about tangible cultural heritage and intangible cultural heritage, the different cultural values tied with the Atlantic seabed. Because it was as we read different poetry, different literature, listened to music, and it became quite evident that the Atlantic seabed has cultural significance for African people and people of African descent, and that it's often discussed as a a burial ground or a place to find African history, um, because of this very dark period of history and the, um, the deaths that did occur during the transatlantic slave trade.
1: To circle back on something that Cindy mentioned, the International Seabed Authority, the ISA, is the regulatory body that oversees the use of the seabed and has the authority and the unique ability to memorialize the legacy of the Middle Passage. According to their website, the International Seabed Authority is an autonomous international organization through which state parties to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea organize and control all mineral resource related activities in the area for the benefit of mankind as a whole. And in doing so, the ISA has the mandate to ensure the effective protection of the marine environment from harmful effects that may arise from deep seabed related activities, and it continues to state that the area. And its resources are the common heritage of all mankind and the area, the seabed beyond national jurisdiction covers approximately 54% of the total area of the world's ocean. I asked Cindy and Phil if they could put this into context for me.
2: So if we think about kind of the, the ocean, um, the ocean space, it's most broadly separated into kind of two regions. So from a coastline out to 200 nautical miles, the country has jurisdiction over that area. Whereas beyond that, in what's known as the areas beyond national jurisdiction, the seabed becomes the area that the international seabed managers so the international seabed isn't owned by any one country in particular it is purely the jurisdiction of the international seabed authority and their remit is really to manage the resources on and underneath the international seabed on behalf of all those countries of humankind as a whole so that's kind of the spatial boundaries that the international seabed authority operate in and within their kind of mandate is set up by the united nations convention on the law of the sea that law is what formed the international seabed authority through an implementing agreement and they kind of set set the rules that the international seabed authority have to follow and part of that relates to cultural heritage but that's very specifically about artifacts and human remains it doesn't necessarily encompass this general cultural value that we're also talking about what i think is really is key is that In my mind, because the International Seabed Authority has to act on behalf of humanity as a whole and manage the resources of the international seabed for everyone as a whole. They, to do that, they kind of have to be cognizant of all the different values that are tied into marine spaces. And that's kind of where this intangible cultural heritage conversation becomes important.
0: The International Seabed Authority, it really has, you know, at its, biggest overview, it has two responsibilities, to promote and support exploitation of mineral resources on the seabed and to protect the marine environment from from harm. And so where this comes into play with the middle passage, you wanna have to think about, well, what what marine resources are we even talking about so clearly for the Middle Passage, this is the trade from Africa to the, to the Americas of uh, enslaved Africans. So it's across the Atlantic Basin. And in the Atlantic Basin, the mineral resources that the Seabed Authority is promoting or and, and the states, the member states are interested in exploiting are the poly, what's called polymetallic sulfides. These are copper-rich minerals at hot springs on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. So the ships, the slave trading ships, passed over this region of the Atlantic and then there are also there's another mineral resource called cobalt polymetallic cobalt crusts and those occur on certain kinds of plateau areas with the right kind of geochemical oceanography Uh, and those also occur in the Atlantic beneath the beneath the waves where the slave ships were and so there are at least two resources uh, mineral resources that the seabed authority is managing and as uh, uh, given out contracts for exploration, um, so it is the Atlantic is a at least on paper a busy place. There's no mining, of course, at, at this point, but it's a busy place for the International Seabed Authority. So that's part of what we're thinking about in in trying to bring together this these ideas of the cultural heritage of the deep Atlantic and the idea of exploiting the seafloor and wanting to make sure that that heritage is respected, regarded, remembered, um, and somehow, if not prominent, somehow kept in the minds of the of the contractors, the IS, the Seabed Authority Secretariat and and uh and the member states.
1: What are the chances of finding an artifact?
0: The
2: Atlantic Ocean is vast and the Middle Passage is not simply one route. It is multiple routes that connected, I think it's 40 some ports within Africa to numerous different locations within all of the Americas. And who knows what the chances are of locating at a tangible artifact. The chances obviously increase the more and more we are active and active on the seabed. But we don't know whether a tangible artifact will be found on the international seabed due to deep sea mining activities. But just because you haven't found a tangible artifact doesn't mean that this space isn't important to certain people or that it does not erase that history. And I think that's where the intangible cultural values and the importance of the Atlantic seabed to different peoples, people with different Worldviews views is really important in the paper we try and pull that evidence from poetry music and literature to kind of highlight how the Atlantic seabed is talked about more broadly within um, African diasporic cultural memory and even if an artifact isn't found that space still holds value as evidence through these poetry music literature so this idea of memorialization is a way to respect and acknowledge that cultural significance, regardless of whether a tangible artifact is found or not, the idea of ribbons was an idea that Cindy had, and it's kind of a cartographic memorial um, that can highlight this place as having significance in history and for people of and African people and people of African descent.
1: These ribbons would be illustrated on a map as a physical representation of the Middle Passage across the Atlantic Ocean.
2: The paper is really trying to start a conversation, the ribbons are one idea of how a memorialization may take place, but we're super conscious as authors, it's not, a, it's not our place to make that recommendation or to say that this is how a memorial should take place, and it's really trying to start a conversation at the International Seabed Authority about whether a memorial is, is needed on the Atlantic seabed in this context and what a memorial should look like we're really fortunate and very thankful to our our co-author michael canu who is part of the delegation for sierra leone who joined the paper as part of the delegation for sierra leone with the manuscript now being published he he can lead those conversations with other african um, states and the african group to the international seabed authority to get their perspectives on this idea and to lead that conversation at the International Seabed Authority. So it's really just trying to initiate those considerations.
1: During our discussion, Phil mentioned as part of writing this paper that they leaned on co-authors that sent them book references and resources as the project the paper stretches across multiple disciplines. And it was through this process that small discoveries were found. And it just goes to show the importance of having these wider conversations.
0: Personal discovery, my own discovery, I had no idea. That there was a mythology of Drexia, that there was this intangible heritage of the of the African American community, and I think it spreads beyond the African American community in in the U.S. And well, clearly it does in terms of not so much Drexia per se, but um, the the poetry, the Derek Walcott poem. Um, you know, there there's a, a appreciation, contemporary appreciation of the Middle Passage that I had not been sensitive to and, and you know, the artistic expression of, of that experience is, is very much, seems to me to be very much alive. And I think that was, a, that was a real lesson to me, the things that we have discovered, that Phil discovered to begin with, and, and, and we keep on discovering of, of, of how much is going on in this, in this space. And then the other perspective is I'm a white privileged woman and an academic, right? Whether that matters or not, I don't know. But um, I don't know in the the US, I guess I'm taking a US-centric view of things here, but I don't know how many African-Americans are aware of what is poised to happen in that ocean space. And I don't, I, I honestly don't know if it matters, right? Because, you know, mining is mining and it's not going to impact most things. And we've got, on paper anyway, protections for uh, the tangible artifacts. But I felt that the, I just felt the word, we need to get the word out somehow. And this is my clumsy or our clumsy, I don't want to call anybody else clumsy. (laughs) It's my clumsy way to, to kind of like phil said open that conversation and discussion and i think we've understood from michael canoe the, the uh, ambassador from sierra leone that the african group which is a a, a group of african member states of the international seabed authority had been thinking of this anyway uh, before before we connected with him for this paper but it was new it was all new to me to be thinking about so it was you know my little bit of exploration and discovery and, and um, I don't know how to say this humbly and, and without appropriating anything but it, it was a it was really um, a surprise and, and fascinating to and moving to learn of these things.
1: The paper discusses contemporary cultural significance of the Atlantic seabed as seen in poetry art and music so I asked Cindy and Phil if they could share or highlight one of the pieces mentioned in the paper or even one that wasn't mentioned in the paper.
2: I'd like to highlight the Lucille Clifton poem, I think Cindy found this one and shared that with me originally, but there's a really good video on YouTube where Lucille Clifton actually reads it out and talks a bit about her views around that poem and, and from that interview she talks about kind of the difference between the Atlantic and the Pacific and how she, she loves the Pacific um, because it's a friendly ocean have the history that the atlantic ocean has that interview with her is really really powerful
3: Lucille Clifton. i was trying to explain to a colleague at the university of california why i like the pacific a lot and they were trying to tell me why the atlantic is the best ocean um so now you know the kind of intellectual conversation that goes on among faculty we'd be talking about what's the best ocean that's the truth uh <laughs> what can I tell you? And I, it was hard to explain to her why a person of my color may not be that crazy about the Atlantic. Can you, can you understand why? After all, was has not been my friend. Now, it is also true that a person who is Oriental is not too crazy about the Pacific because some not-so-hot not, not things happen across the Pacific. But anyway, this is about that. And this is another song we used to sing in the Baptist Church when I used to be Baptist. It starts with, Them bones, them bones will rise again. Them bones, them bones will walk again. Them bones, them bones will talk again. Now, hear the word of the Lord. Atlantic is a sea of bones. My bones. My elegant Africans connecting Waida and New York A bridge of ivory. Seabed, they call it. In its arms, my early mothers sleep. Some women left with babies in their arms. Some women wept and threw the babies in. Maternal armies pace the Atlantic floor. I call my name into the roar of surf and something awful
1: With regard to a piece of poetry, art, literature, music mentioned in the paper, here's Cindy's response.
0: I just find the Afrofuturistic Drexia world utterly fascinating. (laughs) Um, It's such a, I I would never have imagined the the wild, um, what style of art is that, the graphic art that goes along with the. The Drexia mythology, and then this very mysterious clipping group—the Detroit. What is it called, Phil? The
3: yeah,
2: clipping.
0: Then the tech, techno. What's it? Called? What kind of music is it? Electro techno music.
2: Yeah, techno.
0: And they are anonymous, right? You don't really know who these this duo is intentionally, and they tell their story about this myth, myth initially on the cover of the cds you know the the face of this compact disc and if you read it closely you know it just has little bits of a hint of what this Drexia myth is and then it's been captured by others and brought along in in books in a book and a graphic novel what else it's it's just um it's pretty amazing how this Drexia myth has been brought forward by multiple people and it's, I imagine it's still continuing and there's yeah and, from, there's-
2: and over quite a long period of time it obviously shows its importance from that original conception Drexia's album in 97 and then i have the book from 2019 and by river solomon called the deep so yeah that time span where this mythology is still uh, still evolving and being built upon by other creative works is really really amazing
1: i never heard of Drexia before so i asked phil and cindy if they could expand a little bit more on this
2: Drexio is a band it's a a techno duo and this duo in 1997 came out with an album called The Quest and as Cindy alluded to earlier on the album cover is kind of spells out and alludes to this this wider mythology that inspired a lot of the music and the mythology in a nutshell is that there's a, a civilization that has established on the Atlantic seabed um, populated by Drorhexians and those Drorhexians are ancestors of enslaved African women and their mothers were thrown over the side of slave ships um, for being just dis- disruptive cargo that's what it says on the, on the, um, in the mythology so their children were born from the womb into the Atlantic Ocean and because of that they never needed to breathe air they became these aquatic beings and established this community on the atlantic seabed descended from enslaved enslaved african women so it's a really powerful mythology
0: and then it goes on the more recent stuff it, when does the uprising come with the second? oh yes yeah. so that, come from...
2: that comes from clippings so in the this american life the podcast had an episode all about afrofuturism as a as a genre and as part of that, they commissioned uh, a song called "The Deep" by by this techno group Clipping. And the opening phrases of that talks about as Cindy alluded to this uprising, where I think it's because of humans going down into the depths for resources. I think they quote All and gas, um, and because of that, they're disrupting Direxian civilization, and they're they're then uprising in this song, Clipping. Our mothers were pregnant African women thrown overboard
0: while crossing the Atlantic Ocean on slave ships. We were born breathing water as we did in the womb. We built our home on the sea floor, unaware of the two-legged surface dwellers, until their world came to destroy ours. With cannons, they searched for oil beneath our cities.
2: Their greed and recklessness forced our uprising. Tonight, we
0: remember.
4: Y'all remember how deep it goes started from the bottom y'all remember how deep it go for y'all had to come back deep y'all remember when it used to be deep so deep so so deep ayy when y'all swam about your mama while your mama was asleep so deep so so deep ayy and y'all remember when y'all had the dance floor lit Dark. No two-step deep, y'all don't even sweat deep As deep as it gets, dreaming dead asleep and keeping time Y'all heart beat deep, y'all heart beat deep And all the fishes had their eyes bugged out Cause y'all dancing underwater and y'all don't get wet And the dark smelled sweet and y'all tails touch reef Y'all feed off the bottom, but now y'all remember I'll remember.
1: to wrap up our discussion today one of the questions that we posed was how do you memorialize or honor something you can't see mentioned in the paper we talked a bit about the middle passage ceremonies and port marker project and per their website they're a nonprofit organization established in 2011 to honor the two million captive africans who perished during the transatlantic crossing known as the middle passage and the 10 million who survived to build the Americas. And on their website, they have a map showing the documented middle passage sites in the United States, including one in Beaufort, North Carolina. This organization works with local communities and organizations at these sites to install a marker as well as hold the ceremony commemorating the lives of the African ancestors
0: paper also acknowledges that there is a a memorial or international recognition of the Middle Passage at the United Nations campus in New York City. It's called the Ark of Return, and it has three elements acknowledge the tragedy, consider the legacy and lest we forget. And so you could ask, why? well, if the UN has this in quotes covered, why would we? Why would we push for something else? And I I think I in my mind, I come back to the fact that it is a seabed authority that is exploring the seabed, c- and we'll be exploiting and disturbing the the seabed. C- and it's not that we want to uh, inhibit mining at all. We just want to raise the consciousness, raise the awareness of, of those involved with the seabed c- authority about this heritage. Cartographic ribbons is a way to, mem- to memorialize the Middle Passage in a way that's meaningful to the people involved in working on the seabed c- in, in mining. It, it can be broader than that, but I think if for, in my from my perspective, it's important for the players, stakeholders and contractors and regulatory authority to keep this in their minds and, it, again, it's not to inhibit mining.
1: How does this tie into a question posed at the end of the paper?
2: Question that we pull off at the end of the paper and he pulls into focus a question posed by Swande M. Mustakeem, and we quote it in the paper and, and she says, how and more aptly can the dead be remembered if many of slavery's dead are never found? And that was a poignant quote that we found in our our research and really speaks to why this conversation is important. And the International Seabed Authority, because of how it's made up, it's a a United Nations level organization. All these countries come to the table physically in one room. I feel like there is an opportunity to have a meaningful conversation about what these ocean spaces mean and have meant historically and how to build that idea of remembering and respecting internationally and with within the activities that everyone's doing at the international Seabed authority and cindy spoke about how the cartographic memorial is is a good way to communicate that to the international seabed authority because it's contracted. Every it's a it's a space underwater. All these decisions and all these plans of where you're exploring and where you're potentially mining are discussed around a map. the The only way to picture to depict different state contract different state parties and contractors, the areas that are designated is through a map form. So by layering that kind of that history and layering that that history onto the map brings that to the forefront of people's minds as as they are thinking about where you're exploring and where you're potentially exploiting it, it brings that to the forefront.
0: Um, It it comes also like you're saying from anybody who talks about contracts on the seafloor from the ISA that really shows a map. So for the Atlantic Basin, you see the contracts of the. Of the Polish, Russian, and French contractors, and Brazil, for the for the cobalt crusts, and those maps are shown in dozens and dozens of fora, as well as on the internet. You know, I had students ask me, "Well, so you keep that focus on the ISA, and what about the rest of the world? How are they going to know about this?" And I think, you know, the rest of the world there's, there are there are many other ways of doing this, and it's you know, it takes a collective uh, approach. And there's so there is, for example, the poetry and the. The Drexia mythology and the the music and the art and the memorials in ports and the memorials uh, the memorial in the UN campus in New York City, you know collectively all these things are keeping this in our minds. Um, And so I think it's a, yeah I think the you know the maps will be if if it was just routinely on a map there's always on the maps they show the Clarion Clipperton Clarion, Clarion fracture zone the Clipperton fracture zone they show the Mid Atlantic Ridge they could just as easily put uh representative you know abstract even lines shadows uh trans semi-transparent ribbons that you know that's one way whether this is again as phil has said it's a discussion it's not for us to we're, we're trying to open the discussion and there may be even more elegant ways to do this
1: and as we close out this episode
5: here's derek walcott the sea is history where are your monuments your battles martyrs Where is your tribal memory? Sirs, in that gray vault, the sea. The sea has locked them up. The sea is history. First, there was the heaving oil heavy as chaos. Then, like a light at the end of a tunnel, the lantern of a caravel, and that was Genesis. Then there were the packed cries, the shit, the moaning, Exodus. Bone soldered by Coraline to bone, mosaics mantled by the benediction of the shark's shadow. That was the Ark of the Covenant. Then came from the plucked wires of sunlight on the seafloor, the plungent harps of the Babylonian bondage as the white cowries clustered like manacles on the drowned women. And those were the ivory bracelets of the Song of Solomon. But the ocean kept turning blank pages looking for history. Then came the men with eyes heavy as anchors who sank without tombs. Brigands who barbecued cattle leaving their charred ribs like palm leaves on the shore. Then the foaming rabid moor of the tidal waves swallowing Port Royal and that was Jonah but where is your renaissance? Sir, it is locked in them sea sands out there past the reef's moiling shelf where the man o' war floated down. Strap on these goggles, I'll guide you there myself. It's all subtle and submarine through colonnades of coral past the gothic windows of sea fans to where the crusty grouper onyx-eyed blinks weighted by its jewels like a bald queen. And these groined caves with barnacles pitted like stone are our cathedrals and the furnace before the hurricane's Gomorrah? Bones ground by windmills into marl and cornmeal, and that was lamentations. That was just lamentations, it was not history. Then came, like scum on the river's drying lip, the brown reeds of villages mantling and congealing into towns, and at evening the midges' choirs. And above them, the spires lancing the side of God as his sun set, and that was the New Testament. Then came the white sisters, clapping to the waves' progress, and that was emancipation, jubilation, oh, jubilation vanishing swiftly as the sea's lace dries in the sun. But that was not history, that was only faith, and then each rock broke into its own nation. Then came the synod of flies. Then came the secretarial heron. Then came the bullfrog bellowing for a vote. Fireflies with bright ideas and bats like jetting ambassadors and the mantis like cocky police and the furred caterpillars of judges examining each case closely. And then in the dark airs of ferns and in the salt chuckle of rocks with their sea pools, there was the sound like a rumor Without any echo of history really beginning.
1: We hope that you enjoy listening to today's episode. And if you'd like to keep the conversation going or share feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to email us at Dumo Podcast, duml podcast at duke.edu. You've been listening to Seize the Day. So we're on social media, Instagram and Twitter, at Seize the Day Pod. Thank you and thank you to Phil Turner and Cindy Vandover. I really enjoyed our conversation and I really appreciate you both. And thank you to Jonathan Snipes and Clipping for allowing us to share a short clip of The Deep. Also, I thank you to Folgers Shakespeare Library for granting us permission to share The Sea's History by Derek Walcott as read by Derek Walcott for the Folgers Obie Hardison Poetry Series in March, 2007. Today's episode was written and produced by Stephanie Hillsgrove and Nora Ives. Our theme music, The Oyster Waltz, was written and recorded by Joe Morton. And for more about this episode, including links and other content mentioned, check out our website at sites.nicholas.duke.edu backslash Seize the Day. Thanks for listening.